This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we're presenting another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. After all, one meaning of corona is halo of light. So together, let's find the silver lining in this pandemic. And while normally we're heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, this episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. We also would like to give a shout out to the Augustine Institute with the Formed app where Dr. Doctor can now be found. Today's guest will be Dr. Paul Cieslak. He'll be playing a game of fact versus fiction regarding various statements that have been said in the news regarding coronavirus. Paul is a graduate of The Ohio State University. He then trained uh, in medical school. He trained in internal medicine in Seattle, did an infectious disease fellowship in St. Louis, and worked uh, in the Epidemic Intelligence Service, yes, that's a thing, from 1992 to 94 with the (laughs) CDC. In 94, he went to Oregon as a CDC preventive medicine resident, and he stayed on to work for the State Public Health Division's Communicable Disease Epidemiology Section and Oregon's Emerging Infections Program. From 97 to 2011, he worked on the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. And since 2014, month of July, he's been Medical Director for the Oregon Public Health Division's Communicable Disease and Immunization Program. And he even still sees patients in an infectious disease clinic once a month. He married an Oregonian in 1988, and together they have six children, live in Northeast Portland, Oregon, and they're active members of St. Rose Parish. Paul, Welcome, finally, to Dr. Doctor. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to have you. Uh, Paul, you've been in public health for nearly three decades. What have you seen with this pandemic that you've never seen before? Well, the response to this pandemic has been uh, certainly unlike anything I've ever seen, and probably appropriately so. Uh, You know, one of the reasons that I'm in infectious diseases is because uh, as Rosanna, Rosanna Dan always used to say, it's always something, uh, you know, and, and we've seen, we've seen West Nile go by, we've seen E. coli 0157, we've seen anthrax, pandemic influenza, you know, SARS, MERS, on and on. Uh, but most of them kind of came and went, and this one has stuck more and, and really caused uh, more illnesses and, and a lot of deaths than, than most of those other things. I mean, influenza is always with us and, and it's always killing people and putting them in the hospital. But as for new infections that come by, uh, this one's stuck. And, and I think that's, that's been the reason for the big response. Well, Paul, today we want to play a game of fact versus fiction. And you're going to tell us which it is. And I know, like most good scientists, you've got a third category for answers too, but we'll still allow you on the show anyway. So the first statement um, that I've heard people make is, we shouldn't bother with social distancing. Everyone's going to get it anyway. Fact or fiction? Uh, I think mostly fiction. I think um, social distancing is going to work. Uh, If normally, you know, you have contact with four people, and uh, you can cut it down to two, then you will have reduced your chances of getting sick by half. And uh, furthermore, if you are one of the half that gets sick, uh, you've reduced your chances of spreading it to someone else by, by half as well. So every little bit of social distancing that you can do, the, the reduction in social contacts, 
uh, it stands to reason that, that you're uh, much less likely to lead to transmission of the disease. And, and really our goal is to uh, truncate those chains of transmission. So I think it does help. I think what's unknown is how much social distancing, how long do you need to do it for in order to achieve the effect that you want uh, in, in the spread of this particular infection anyway. As a follow-up to that, one of the proxies for the amount of social distancing we're doing has actually been examined by one of the phone companies looking at cell phone data via GPS. Yes, doesn't it just warm your heart to know how we're being tracked? <laughs> what, uh, whether or not you know this data, what percentage decrease in weekly travel in miles would you consider uh, evidence that we're really taking social distancing seriously. So if in an average day an American traveled 100 miles, what do you think would be a reduction that would show that we really care about this? Wow, that's a, that is an interesting question and an interesting metric. So I'm, you know, I'm going to punt a little bit and say that I'm not sure that miles is the best metric because I think the kind of social contact that is most likely to spread disease is the kind that you're having with your neighbor and so, you know, if you've cut your, your, your trips across the state in half, but you're still going to the Mardi Gras party with, you know, 20 of your closest neighbors, right. I would say you haven't accomplished much. Uh, so I'm, I'm really interested in how much have people decided, you know, not to have parties, not to have people over at their house uh, and to interact closely like that. The best county in the country is... Clark County, Nevada, where Las Vegas is located, they reduced travel by 53%. The best other states were between 40 and 45, and others far below that. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. And yeah, we'll have to see if that, uh, if that actually leads to some results. I know one, one question that we get a lot is about testing and identifying the virus. Is there a way, fact or fiction, to identify someone's got COVID apart from a test for the virus itself? Uh, no, because uh, there are too many other diseases that can mimic at least the early stages of COVID-19. Uh, remember that other coronaviruses uh, cause about 15% of the common cold, and, and this virus as well can give you symptoms like that where you have uh, maybe a little bit of fever, but but some muscle aches and, and some upper respiratory symptoms. Uh, and influenza looks a lot like COVID in, in many ways, not, not always, but in many ways. And so there's really no way to tell without a specific uh, test for the virus. I know you, you had mentioned the Ciro study. When would that be something that would be feasible? Because I, I know there's a lot of folks who might have symptoms of an upper respiratory infection now, and we're saying act like it could be COVID, you know, and, and treat it respectfully. They're not in the clear though, are they? Right. Um, I mean, I do think that's good advice that everybody should act if they have symptoms as though they have COVID because it's, it's really what does the sick person do that is going to stop the transmission? I mean, there's a certain amount you can do to protect yourself from getting it, but the main onus for preventing the transmission is really going to be on the sick person and does the sick person stay at home and, and cover his cough and, and those kinds of things. Um, the serologic tests that we're talking about, so these are tests for antibodies. Um, uh, to my knowledge, none have been, you know, put to market or FDA approved yet, but I think several are about to be. 
And, um, and they hold the potential of just going out and testing a random sample of the population and finding out how many have had the infection, whether they thought they were sick or not. So it, it's going to be a good epidemiologic tool. I heard they've done that in Northeast Italy, and they found like, I don't know, four or 5% of the population had had it. Are you familiar with that? Uh, I'm not familiar with that study, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. I do suspect that there's a large uh, amount of either uh, non-symptomatic infection or mildly symptomatic infection, and, uh, and, and that would effectively reduce the observed case fatality rate if we find out that there's a lot more people yes. out there who had the infection than we, than we knew. Fact versus fiction. As the weather warms up this spring and summer, COVID cases will decrease in the United States. Uh, well, I'm afraid it's unknown. Um, th there are data out there now about the other coronaviruses. There, there were about four other coronaviruses that, that circulated commonly and caused the common cold. And if, if this virus behaves like them, then we can expect a, you know, we would normally expect a wintertime peak mm -hmm. with cases starting to really go away near the end of March. Now, the problem with making that comparison is, first of all, this is a new virus. It may not behave like those other coronaviruses. There are respiratory viruses that circulate year round in the United States, like some parainfluenza viruses, for example. Um, and the other thing is that when coronavirus is circulating every year, uh, you'd expect that there'd be some level of immunity within the population, right? Most of us will have right. been exposed before, uh, and, but that doesn't exist with this new strain of coronavirus. So um, I'm going to hope that uh, there's some seasonality to it, but I'm not going to bet the farm on it. Okay. How, how about herd immunity? Would it be fair to assume that maybe by this summer, July, for example, we'd have some herd immunity to this, or will we not expect business as usual to occur until after that time? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that we'll have herd immunity with this virus, but uh, I can't promise it because the immunity to some viruses ends up being short-lived and, uh, and you have to get re-exposed over and over again. Um, if there is durable immunity following infection to this particular coronavirus, then, then I think we might hope that uh, we will see some herd immunity effects. Uh, before the disease would go away, you'd probably need to get, oh, 70 to 80% of the population infected, um, even if they don't have any symptoms, uh, before you would see the disease go away. But you may see significant reductions in transmission with immunity levels lower than that. Would, would we expect that to happen naturally before a vaccine was ready? Or do we think that the vaccine would beat that to, to the punch? Yeah, a vaccine is, is probably at least a year, year and a half away. Um, uh, a lot of it's going to depend on how much infection we prevent right now with all our social distancing measures. Uh, you know, ironically, the, the better the social distancing measures work, the, the less herd immunity that we're going to have, right? right? Because fewer people are going to be infected. Um, if I had to make a guess right now, I would say um, we're not going to have herd immunity before the 12 to 18 months it takes to make a vaccine. Paul, fact versus fiction. Despite being rated the most prepared country in the world for a pandemic, the U.S. now has the highest number of COVID cases in the world, and this is primarily due to a delay in testing capability. Uh, I think that's fiction. I think that... Um, uh, you know, a test is no cure, right? Uh, you can take some measures if you know that you're positive, but uh, 
again, we know that there's a lot of people who are infected without even having symptoms who, even if a test had been available immediately, would probably not have been tested. Uh, there are other reasons for the high case counts in the United States. First of all, we're the third most populous country in the world. So, so we would expect to have more cases than say Italy or Germany or the United Kingdom. Um, but, but it's also largely a function of uh, how much testing is being done. And when the, more, uh, when the testing became more broadly available in the United States, at least, uh, a lot of people were going to get tested. Uh, here in Oregon, I can tell you only about 5% uh, of people who get tested end up being positive. So there's a lot more people tested, um, even, even though testing has been quite constrained until now, until recently, but still, there's a lot more people getting tested than were actually, you know, truly exposed to the to the virus. So um, it's I, I wouldn't bank too much. I wouldn't bank at all on the case counts that you see because they're so liable to testing biases. Um, I would go much more based on hospitalizations. You know, uh, that that's less likely to be biased by testing um, and by fatalities. So why is our country getting the brunt of it? I look at the uh, Worldometer's map. Russia has only a couple thousand cases. It's an enormous country. Are they just not reporting? Are they just not testing? And then in China, it didn't even make it to the two biggest cities in the world on the same landmass. What's going on? Right. Uh, I, I would say you just, you just can't trust um, the testing numbers and whether a, a disease gets reported and, and shows up in the data is going to be dependent on uh, do people go to the doctor? Does the doctor order the test? Does the test result uh, turn positive? Does it get reported to public health authorities? Do public health authorities make the data public? And I'm not sure that's happening in, in every country of the world. And do you think it was fair that we were ranked as the most prepared country for a pandemic by John Hopkins before this happened? Wow, I, you know, I really don't know the answer to that question. I'm sorry. I think we have a lot of good things in place and we've been thinking about pandemics uh, for quite some time. Uh, I will say that um, one thing I know that we have more than any other country is uh, critical care beds. Um, we have, for example, nearly three times the number of critical care beds per person uh, than, than Italy has. So we're, we're more prepared in that regard. But uh, as far as other aspects of preparedness, I, I don't think I can speak to it. Well, the, the folks that are getting those tests, and, and you kind of quoted a number where the minority of them actually test positive, are all those people symptomatic? That is to say, are they all following the guidelines for testing? I think most of them are because uh, in general in Oregon, we're not testing people who don't have symptoms. We, we did early on when we had our earliest cases and we were, you know, we were hoping to converge on the case and keep it absolutely contained. Of course, we found out pretty quickly that the cat was out of the bag already, but early on we were testing some asymptomatic people, but we gave up on it really quickly. We weren't finding any positives in that group of people. Okay, I've got a factor fiction for you. We currently have enough testing uh, capability for COVID in the U.S. True or false? <laughs> that's that's another good one. It depends. It depends what your goal for the testing is. Uh, I'm an epidemiologist, and and for epidemiologic purposes, um, I would like to see a zero survey out there, and I would like to see a certain amount of testing that's geographically widespread, that's being done on a wide variety of populations, uh, and and we haven't seen that yet, um, and we work as I said, quite constrained early on. So I think it's fair to say that uh, 
we were inhibited a little bit by, um, by testing shortage. But on the other hand, if people are really willing to heed the advice to stay home whenever you're sick, uh, you know, that will not only go a long way to preventing COVID-19 transmission, but it'll prevent you from transmitting influenza as well. Uh, if you have a cough, you know, you probably have a legitimate desire to know, do I have COVID-19 or not? I don't want to be exposing other people to COVID-19. But on the other hand, I don't want you coughing on me with your influenza either. So, you know, I would just assume you stay home and, uh, and not get tested and then be out and around uh, coughing some other virus on people. Well, do you think this is going to change the way we deal with cough and cold season next year, even if it's not COVID? I mean, is this just waking us up to what, what would be good habits in general? Uh, I hope so. Um, you know, infectious disease docs have known for a long time that a lot of respiratory viruses, for example, are spread on the hands. You know, people are putting their hands to their, their mouth, their nose, their eyes many times every hour. And, and then they, they shake your hand and they put on your hand whatever they had in their face. And then you're going to put your hand to your nose or your eye or your mouth and, and inoculate yourself. So we've known for a long, long time that this is a, ma a major route of transmission for respiratory viruses. And uh, it would be good to see some of the habits that we're learning now. I mean, maybe we really should be, you know, doing the elbow bump instead of um, shaking hands all the time. I, so I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll have some lasting benefits. So in cold and flu season, you don't think it would be a bad idea when I go in and to meet my most surgery patients that I don't shake hands with them at that point? I, I think that would be great if you could avoid doing that and, and uh, I think it would always be good if you could stay home with your cough and, and, you know, and everybody did that. Fact versus fiction. We in the United States have gone through the worst of the COVID pandemic in the United States. In other words, the curve is flattening or falling. Oh boy. Um, I, I think the curve may be starting to flatten, but that doesn't mean that it's falling yet. Uh, I think we're gonna see a lot more cases and a lot more fatalities before this thing is over. Uh, that said, I, I do think that um, some of the extraordinary social distancing measures that have been undertaken, you know, here in Oregon, uh, not only are the schools closed, but most businesses are closed. Uh, um, most outdoor activities are closed. The playgrounds are closed, for example. Oh. Um, uh, gatherings of more than 25 were, were prohibited. Uh, you know, maintaining six feet distance. I see people jogging with each other down the street, all standing six feet apart. You know, you didn't used to <laughs> see that. And, and I, I really do have to believe that that's going to have an effect. How big an effect and, and how long we need to maintain those social distancing strategies, I think, uh, is still guesswork, and we're going to have to follow the data really closely and sort of say, well, when, when do we lighten up? When do we think we have uh, will have uh, flattened the curve enough? Paul, fact or fiction, there's no good that could possibly come from this pandemic, right? Well, the Lord can pull good from anything, can't he? I mean, I, uh, I, I think there will be good that comes from the pandemic. Um, I won't say that it's going to overwhelm the, the suffering that uh, a lot of people are undergoing right now. I think we've got a lot of economic hardship in front of us uh, based on, you know, all the people being out of work for so long. But uh, I hope that we can um, get used to, to, to practicing some of these measures that will um, reduce the spread of disease in the future. And I hope that, you know, while people are staying home, you know, they're renewing and strengthening 
the relationships on the home front um, that, that maybe they were letting slide a little bit. Because I think you have more people in your household now than you normally would, don't you? Yeah, I'm afraid I do. Um, <laughs> Because I've got uh, kids home from college. I have a daughter who's a teacher and, and the, the, uh, the classes uh, aren't happening in person. So she's been home with us. And I have another daughter in college and uh, a son who's a senior in high school and, and he's staying home with us. And so the, the house is a little more crowded, but, but uh, we're not having a lot of interaction with those outside the household. Yeah, we're enjoying it too. We have two home from college now. And so we're up to five at home instead of the three we had all year. And it's actually been a blessing. And I've talked to a number of other men I, I know who are business owners, same thing, Catholics. And they're actually saying this has been a great time for their families. Mm-hmm. Paul, you mentioned something about economic hardship in that answer. How in Oregon do you make the decision of when to open businesses back up? Well, I, I won't get to make the decision. That's going to be the governor's call. Um, <laughs> and, and it's going to be some, uh, some combination of, uh, you know, how bad is the economic hardship and how good are the health data looking? So it's, it's something that we're going to be uh, evaluating regularly. We did commission a model to be, to be done using Oregon data to try to project, you know, what have we achieved so far? And uh, we'll be feeding the newer data as they come in, uh, into the model to sort of try to project where we're going and, and make the decision like that. But it, it won't be, um, it'll, it'll be an art and not a science. Is the curve in Oregon falling down? I mean, our, as I said uh, earlier, in response to a more general question, um, our, our cases are continuing to rise. Even uh, in Oregon? Even in Oregon, right. Okay. Um, but there's a lot more testing going on. Uh, we're getting 60, 70 cases a day and, uh, and several hospitalizations a day. But I will tell you that with all of the measures that have been undertaken to preserve personal protective equipment, you know, the cancellation of elective yes. procedures, um, the hospital censuses are uh, low, right? And, um, and those beds have not filled up with COVID patients. Uh, there are you know, at any given time, I think a few dozen patients in Oregon uh, with COVID-19 in the hospital, but we haven't been, you know, coming close to uh, running out of either medical beds or ICU beds or ventilators or anything like well, that. And that's the next fact versus fiction statement. Hospitals have had to resort to ventilator rationing in the United States. Um, I, th- that's uh, fiction for the most part. Uh, I, I cannot speak to whether there's some hospital somewhere that, that, that uh, ran into a shortage. Uh, but my understanding is that um, New York City, where things appear to have been the worst, uh, they, have, um, they, they have managed to keep up, if only barely, with the need for ICU beds and with ventilators. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people are talking about rationing and they, they seem to be uh, jumping to you know, what do we do to ration care? Uh, I haven't seen a need for it yet. And we're certainly hoping that we're never going to get to that point where we have to make tough ethical decisions like that. It's, it's interesting to me to see the hospital census down because that's, uh, I guess it, it struck me as interesting that so much of our care might be somewhat elective or things that can be otherwise managed as outpatients. You know, and we, we, I've noticed that even in the volumes of outpatient visits that we see in, in our family practice here, that a lot of people can forgo some stuff, whether they should or not. That's another question. Right. I, I mean, I think 
you know, it's going to be a combination, right? Some of the stuff really could be foregone. Not everybody who goes to the emergency department needs to be in an emergency department. I think we've all known that. So it's, it's good that um, some of those uh, visits are being foregone. Uh, by the same token, I think we're going to see a catch up when we, when we uh, loosen the screws and say, okay, we can resume those elective procedures. I mean, there are people who really need to have those procedures, yes. even though they weren't urgent or emergent at the time. They, they really need to have, you know, their hip replaced or whatever it is. Um, so I, I think we're going to see a rebound at some point. Fact versus fiction, the pandemic would end sooner if we had COVID parties, like chicken pox parties, except uh, in, in 2020. Is that a good idea? <laughs> well, I, I think you might get, get over it sooner uh, if we had COVID parties, <laughs> but at what cost? That's really the question. I mean, how many people, you know, how many, would we overwhelm our health systems and get into that nightmare scenario where people are dying uh, because who otherwise wouldn't because th there were no more ICU beds available or, uh, or we were out of healthcare staff who could staff the beds, for, for example. So, um, you know, we didn't want to pay the price that, uh, that that strategy would entail. Uh, you know, it's, it's true that most diseases, you know, if, if nothing is done, they, they will have a trajectory where they go up and sooner or later, uh, everybody will get infected and they'll start to fall. Uh, but but we didn't want to see that, and we and we rarely do want to see that kind of scenario. Fact versus fiction, a simple one. And this was brought up to me last week by actually your your buddy and mutual admiration society partner Paul Carson from North Dakota. He has heard that the cow coronavirus vaccine given to humans might save lives. Well, you know, if Dr. Carson <laughs> says it, uh, he's a lot smarter than I am. So no, I'm, he said he heard the statement. <laughs> he didn't say he believed it. Um, I have not heard anything about this cow coronavirus vaccine. I guess I've been reading the wrong journals. I think it's patently false, but there are people out there oh, thank um, you. Uh, bringing it up. No, that, that was along with the, the video I saw of people drinking cow urine in India to prevent getting coronavirus. There are actual groups of people doing this. It doesn't we're work. Not actually, yeah, we're not actually recommending that at this point. Yeah, we've got to see the data first. Right? <laughs> That's right. We're data driven here on Dr. Doctor. How, how about wearing a mask in public? Is that a good idea? Is that going to stop us from getting COVID? Uh, I'm pretty skeptical about the value of healthy people wearing masks. Um, I think that if someone is coughing, uh, like let's say they're in your household and, and you know, they, they can't really, you don't want them to leave the household and cough on other people and, and you live in the same household. Uh, it, it might be beneficial for the coughing person to wear the mask because you're going to reduce the dispersion of respiratory droplets out of your mouth and nose uh, if you have some sort of a mask on. But, but if, you're out, if you're healthy and you're out in the public and somebody else is coughing and not wearing a mask, I think the mask is unlikely to offer you a lot of protection. You know, at baseline, when they cough, they're unlikely to cough directly into your mouth, right? <laughs> what they're more likely to do is to cough on your face or your hands or your, or your clothing, or they'll cough into their hand and shake your hand. Um, and so it, it's really not going to provide it, it, it the way I see it, uh, a substantial amount of protection. And it's, you know, sooner or later, you're going to find, you're going to find it pretty annoying and you'll be touching it and fussing with it and touching, touching your face over and over again, which uh, we're trying to discourage as well. That, that's one of the things that's really kind of surprised and impressed me uh, with this whole pandemic is that 
even it seems like a lot of hospitals are encouraging visitors and folks to wear masks. You see people, we've got this mask PPE shortage, but everybody and their brother has masks. We can't buy any more, uh, but everybody else does. Is that something that we should squelch from a public health standpoint or it's benign, we should just let it go? Now we're, I mean, we are discouraging people from, from going out and buying masks on their own because of the PPE shortage, personal protective equipment shortage. If, if we had unlimited supplies of these things, then I would say, you know, laissez-faire, you know, uh, d do what you like to do. But um, they, they really are in short supply to the point where, you know, we've asked people to cancel elective procedures, you know, medical procedures that they should have done. And, uh, and you know, so far, I think we've conserved enough uh, through those mechanisms, but I don't want to see uh, a run on masks or people hoarding that sort of equipment when they're really needed to protect healthcare workers. I mean, let, let's remember that, you know, the nurses at the bedside are going to be exposed much more to, um, to patients who, who are sick and who have secretions and they're there to take care of them much more than your average person walking through a visiting area in a hospital is going to be. So is there a reason for me as a physician seeing patients who aren't suspicious of having COVID, is there a reason for me to wear a mask around the patients coming into my office during a time of social distancing? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, you know, if your patient's coughing, put a mask on the patient right away before right. you evaluate, hopefully. Uh, but for you to wear a mask, no, I don't think. Uh, the, the argument I've heard is that what if we are an asymptomatic carrier, but if we're not coughing, we're just breathing on somebody else transmit it if we're an asymptomatic, you know, a pre-symptomatic carrier? Probably not. Um, I think the, if, if there is significant asymptomatic transmission, and we, we don't know that there is yet, uh, I'm sure there's some, but we, we don't know that, that it's a substantial amount of transmission. Uh, it's probably more through the touching your hands to your mouth or nose or eyes and then, and then uh, you know, contacting the other person. Uh, it's probably not through, you know, just breathing on them. That's an excellent point. That helps a, a lot. Um, now, one of our local hospitals was having people come and pick up yards of this material to do homemade masks and then bring them back to the hospital. What's the value with that? Uh, which kind of mask? Homemade? Homemade. Homemade fabric. Even my wife is making them. Our, our producer for our radio show made 50 of them from the material one of the local hospitals gave to her. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really interesting. Um, you know, right now, um, first of all, I, I don't think that uh, they're going to meet federal regulations. I mean, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration has, <laughs> you know, regulations for, for what kind of mask you can use. And I don't think they're going to meet those regulations. Um, so we, we sort of don't know how effective they're going to be. CDC has very recently uh, release guidance, maybe today or yesterday, to the effect that, you know, if you really have nothing else to use, you could go with a home, you know, go with a homemade mask. Yes. It's probably better than nothing, but it really is a, a last, last, last resort. Okay, that's very good. Paul, fact or fiction, if you, you're an asymptomatic healthcare worker, you should be sleeping in the basement. <laughs> in the basement, well... <laughs> I don't think well, this comes from anybody who's related to Andrew. Let's make this clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, my bedroom is in my basement, so I, 
I am sleeping in the basement. Well, I guess what, what part of social distancing for asymptomatic healthcare workers with their family is reasonable? Uh, right. Um, you know, we're not recommending any social distancing for asymptomatic people, including healthcare workers and, and really, and including after exposure. Uh, we're really kind of going with symptoms because I, I, I frankly think it's impractical. Uh, if you start, if you start um, saying that, that uh, you need uh, a quarantine, uh, let, me, let me back up just a second. Everybody should be doing social distancing, right? Thank I mean, you. Every, Thank you. Everybody <laughs> should be limiting the amount of contact they have. Uh, but, but you know, with with your the people inside your house, uh, we're not recommending anything special for healthcare providers. But, but we really think that uh, if you develop symptoms, then you ought to isolate yourself as best you can. Maybe put a mask on in the house. Maybe try to confine yourself to one room so that you're not touching all the doorknobs in the house and, and everything like that. I actually had my first ever case of influenza on February 27th. And that is exactly what I did. It was miserable. And I was confined to the apartment at one end of our house. My wife didn't even go in there for like four or five days after I got to leave to wash the laundry. So yeah, I know exactly. And, and believe it or not, for the first time in 20 years, I had to cancel surgery because I was ill and patients were ticked off that I didn't come in with my cough and 103.7 fever. I'd be grateful. I, I kind of wonder about that exact scenario because I, I think especially in healthcare, there's a bit of an unwritten rule that you don't cancel anything. Right. I mean, no matter what. And now all of a sudden in the time of the pandemic, the, the way I've kind of looked at it is everybody gets a work note. If you got sniffles, you can't be too careful. Is there going to be a different balance going forward where we have more respect for people who are sick or a better understanding for that? I think there is. Uh, I, you know, I grew up in the same kind of uh, medical milieu as you did. And, you know, and, and part of it was that uh, there was so much work to be done. And here you are, you're an intern, you're sharing call with maybe two, other, two three other interns, and, and you're just going to saddle them with all this extra work if, if you're out. And, and you didn't want to do that. But there needs to be uh, accommodation because, you know, history is rife with examples of epidemics being spread through healthcare, and we don't want to be part of that. And let me tell you, as an infectious disease guy, my nightmare scenarios are going to trace some outbreak to me. So I am particularly <laughs> uh, <laughs> compulsive about this kind of thing. Paul, fact versus fiction. We should wait a day before opening mail or packages delivered to our homes because an infected delivery driver or the person who sent it could transmit disease to us through those fomites. Okay, um, I'm going to say fiction uh, with some caveats as usual. Um, uh, they have done some studies about the survival of COVID-19 on various surfaces, and, Ooh, and you get you good. get different different survivals on various surfaces. Uh, it can survive on cardboard. I mean, if you put the virus, you know, on cardboard, it can survive there for up to 24 hours. So it's theoretically possible, but you have to realize that. Um, uh, there, the indirectness of it is going to lead to, uh, you know, a reduced transmissibility. So uh, I'm certainly not, I'm going to open the packages right away when, when I get my packages. And uh, if you're worried about it, wash your hands afterwards and discard the cardboard. You sound like an adrenaline junkie, Paul, to open those right <laughs> away. And then, then I was just 15 minutes before the interview, another doctor emailed me and said, well, what about when you go to the grocery store, especially bringing home produce? Is there anything special you should do with that? 
Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I think you can treat produce the way you usually treat it. I mean, please God, people aren't coughing on the produce before, uh, right before you picked it up. You know, and one of the things I like to say is, you know, there's risk in everything. I, don't, I never see risk as an all or nothing thing. I always see it as lower or higher. It's, it's on a spectrum and, and you have to decide, uh, you know, which risk you're going to worry about. And I'm worried about the risk that comes from uh, talking, you know, face to face with large numbers of people and, and shaking hands with large numbers of people. But I'm not going to worry about uh you know, picking up uh, a cucumber out of the produce section. Now that brings up a question and I've gotten different answers from different experts. And that is what qualifies as close contact? I've heard some people say three feet face to face for five minutes. The CDC website says two meters, six feet uh, for prolonged period. How do you judge that? Well, that's a great question, and we don't have the answer to it yet. We have been saying six feet because that's sort of an accepted distance for respiratory droplets to fall to the ground. We make a big distinction between a disease that's spread through the airborne route, where you cough it into the air in very small particles, very small droplets up from the lungs, less than five microns in size. They're so small that the surface to volume ratio lends them to desiccating quickly, and, and so you're just left with the nuclei of those droplets, right, the droplet nuclei, and they stay suspended in the air for long periods of time, and they act as a gas. And if you walk into the room an hour after I left, uh, and I had measles, and you inhale the air that I coughed into, then you could get measles from that. Um, there's only a few diseases that typically spread by that route, measles, chickenpox, tuberculosis, that's about it. Almost every other respiratory disease that you could name, you know, influenza, pertussis, the common cold, whoop, uh, I mentioned pertussis, right? Meningococcal disease are spread by the, the droplet route. And these are heavier particles that tend to fall to the ground after you cough or sneeze. They're, they're water laden. Uh, they don't evaporate right away. And, and so six feet is, is sort of the distance that we say. Now, so COVID's in that category of the, the ones COVID that fall is, to the ground within six feet. They don't stay suspended yes. like a gas. And, and we infer that because the transmissibility is not in the same league as that of measles. You know, with, if you drop a case of measles into a completely susceptible population, on average, they expect you'll get about 15 additional cases of measles. With COVID, the Chinese calculated the number as being somewhere between two and five. Yes. So it's, it's much more in the, in the droplet transmission uh, range of transmissibility. Now, how long should you, uh, would you have to be within six feet of somebody? Um, you know, this is, again, on that spectrum. The, the, the longer you're in close contact with somebody, the more likely it is that you're going to catch a droplet somewhere and, and be exposed to the disease. Uh, with meningococcal disease, we say four hours over the previous week. Uh, that's kind of our cutoff. Um, uh, you know, with, with COVID, because um, it seems a little more contagious than, than meninge, uh, you know, we would probably drop that. I haven't seen anybody define explicitly what prolonged means in CDC's term, terminology. Right. Uh, there, was, there was one article where they, they drew a line at 10 minutes and did a little study. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's really on a spectrum and, and I can't draw a sharp line. Right, but it's a practical question uh, if somebody's been with a patient to decide whether or not to self-quarantine, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. And, and that's a great public healthy kind of question. Um, you know, 
we, we've been talking here like maybe 20 minutes is a reasonable uh, line to draw, but, but please, you know, you can't draw a line in the sand and say 19 okay. minutes and, and you're good and 21 and you're, you're, you're exposed. Paul, a second follow-up question to the previous one, except on risk, um, kind of a fact or fiction. I'm a healthy 70-year-old patient with no medical problems. I'm not going to be one of the fatality statistics. Or I guess kind of another way of asking it is, you know, delving into some of these, these folks that did, did suffer death from this, are they all folks with other comorbidities? Are healthy folks really going to do pretty okay despite their age? Or do we not know? Um, yeah, I, I think we don't know exactly yet. Um, we, we, we have to do a good cohort study, you know, look at a uh, few hundred people who have been hospitalized with COVID-19 and, and, and look hard at uh, uh, correlates of who, who lived and who died from their COVID-19. Right now, we're considering you know, age to be an independent risk factor for uh, death from COVID-19. So I would not tell a 70-year-old, um, you're going to be fine. Uh, the, the, the problem, we, we need to refine this a lot better, I will say that, because if you look at, I looked at the Oregon population, you know, because that's, that's what I'm sort of in charge of. And uh, if you add adults 18 to 59 years of age who have a chronic medical condition to adults over 60 years of age and over, uh, that's like 61% of Oregon adults. So, you know, most of us have some risk factor for, um, for severe COVID-19 illness. Now, um, I won't be 60 until about six weeks from now, so <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> Paul, uh, two areas, uh, as, as another follow-up, two areas have gotten inconsistent answers. We, we know that diabetes, Diabetic patients have an increased risk. We know that those with cardiovascular disease. But I've heard different things on asthma or smoking. What's your understanding with those two? Okay, again, I, I, I crave more data on these things. Um, uh, I haven't seen much on asthma, to be honest with you. Um, I think if you're on chronic steroids for your asthma, then uh, you're likely to have uh, a higher risk of, of problems. Smokers, um, there's an interesting uh, correlate, and this is, this is an ecological uh, observation because I don't have individual case data. And by ecological, I mean, I, I know that a population that has a high percentage of smokers, that is Chinese males, had a higher risk of dying in China than, than Chinese females did. Um, and, and maybe that's because that population has a higher incidence of smoking. At least that's what's been bandied about as a, as a plausible explanation. Um, you know, we, we strongly suspect that any underlying lung disease uh, that will, will put you at higher risk because COVID-19 in the lungs is just going to be, uh, you know, insult on top of injury and, and make you more likely, likely to suffer severe consequences. Well, fact, fact or fiction, if you have symptoms of COVID, you should take some hydroxychloroquine just to be safe. Nip it in the bud. Right. Uh, uh, I'll say mostly fiction. And um, the reason I say that is that the data are so thin right now. Now, I, I had my weekend in the hospital just this past weekend and got a lot of calls about uh, patients who are being ruled out for COVID and patients who tested positive for COVID. 
we are using a lot of hydroxychloroquine in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Um, uh, but um, we're doing it with eyes wide open. The data are really thin. Uh, the French recently published a series of uh, 80 patients. There were no controls in that study. Almost all of the patients uh, were, were not very sick at all, like 92% or something had very low uh, illness scores. There's a score called the SOFA score that they use. And, um, and they had very low illness scores and, and almost all of them did very well. Uh, with hydroxychloroquine, but but we don't have a comparator group. We don't have a large group of sick people who have been treated with it in order to to really say whether it works or not. We don't have anything else, and uh, you know, as uh, Shakespeare said, uh, diseases desperate grown by desperate appliance are relieved, or not at all. And and so you know, we're gonna we're gonna try it because it it offers some hope and it's uh, reasonably safe in most people. Um, the Oregon uh, Board of Pharmacy recently uh, pushed out a rule that said um, uh, pharmacists may not dispense hydroxychloroquine except to patients who already had a prescription for it or for hospitalized patients with COVID-19. So they don't want people running to the pharmacy and depleting the stocks of hydroxychloroquine, uh, you know, as preventive measure or, or to treat, you know, mild outpatient illness. The Board of Medicine put out something similar over the weekend here in Indiana about prescribing uh, Plaquenil. Paul, fact versus fiction. It, it is a fact that many people are having to forego medical care because physician offices just aren't accepting most patients in, in many specialties. In fact, our office visits are down like 90% because of this. But this will really have minimal health on Americans going forward if we have to continue this for three months fact or fiction? Um, there are some patients who really need their medical care, and I don't think they should forego it. Uh, there are a lot of things that are elective, though, and, and I think you could put off for a few months, you know, your, uh, your screening colonoscopy or your screening mammogram or things like that. Uh, but, but I don't want to see that go on too long because, you know, people really need their blood pressure treated and they, they need their heart medications and you know, uh, patients on dialysis certainly need their dialysis and et cetera, et cetera. Gotcha. So, so you think there's going to be big pent up demand later this spring or summer when patients can come back to doctors that physicians and almost all specialties are going to be overflowing? I, I think there is going to be a pent up demand. There, there's going to be a lot of people who, who would have gotten their elective uh, procedures or, uh, or their elective visits uh, during this time period, who will have put it off. Uh, and dental care is another big one. Um, oh, my. Yes. You know, I, I was asked to comment on uh, guidance for dentists. Yes. And I started looking into the information, and there is almost nothing that goes on in the dental chair that doesn't involve generation of aerosols, you know, right. spraying of particles into the air that we worry about. Uh, you know, even the dental hygienist doing your, your teeth right. cleaning for water pick. Um, and so I was like, I don't know what I can say they can possibly do safely. And, uh, and it turns out that, you know, the board of dentistry said we recommend cancellation of all non-elective procedures. So, um, you know, if you, if you have a, a dental urgency, you can get care, but all the other dental visits are being put off. And, and I was one of those being put off. 
And how do you decide when the, uh, how will you look at the data to recommend when dentists should start seeing patients again in Oregon? Yeah, we're, I think we're going to have to see, we're either going to have to see, you know, really firm uh, evidence that uh, people who don't have uh, a cough are very unlikely to be shedding the virus or that, um, or that the, the, you know, the disease rates have simply gone down to the point where it's, it's not a big concern anymore. And I think that uh, uh, dental offices are going to have to start thinking about, you know, do we put in 95 masks on, on everybody? Paul, one of the things that I, I learned about um, as I was looking into this stimulus bill that recently passed in Washington, D.C., was that there's a large group of legislators who are interested in making pharmacists, giving them provider status so they can uh, provide medications to patients and order testing and stuff like that in the thought that, you know, all, all other physicians are going to be called up to, to practice more inpatient medicine. So I guess my factor fishing is, should I brush up on my vent management skills? Uh, fiction. <laughs> fiction. Fiction. You don't think it's going to get to that? We don't need the pharmacists ordering, you know, tests and everything? Well, you know, pharmacists in, in many states, including in Oregon, can do, um, can do a lot. Uh, you know, they can vaccinate. A lot of the pharmacists in the hospital systems that I see are managing uh, Coumadin orders, you know, uh, anticoagulation, you know, adju adjusting anticoagulants, adjusting vancomycin levels. Almost, almost never do the docs check the vancomycin level anymore. It's all done by pharmacists. Um, and, and they do a certain amount of that as an outpatient as well. But what I, I, I certainly don't see happening is um, taking people who are used to an outpatient practice and putting them in an inpatient setting and saying, manage this person's vent. I mean, I, I see patients in the hospital, I see patients in the ICU all the time, and I don't even know what's going on with those ventilators anymore. I usually ask the nurse, you know, hey, what, you know, tell me what these things mean. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's really true in the seriously ill people where there's all these, uh, you know, ventilator adjustments that didn't even exist when I was a resident you know, proning, putting people in prone positions and all this stuff. Uh, yeah, I think, um, I, I, I think we're going to need to leave the ventilator management to the, uh, to the hospitalists and the intensivists. So it's not going to get that bad, right? I don't think so. That's good. Fact versus fiction. Watching news about COVID throughout the day is the best way for me to prevent being infected. <laughs> oh, my golly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think you should not be watching news about COVID-19 all day. You know, one of the things I learned pretty early in public health is that reporters report. That's what they do. And uh, if they have no news to report, you know what they do? They report. They report <laughs> something because that's their, that's their job. And so there's this constant, you know, barrage of information. And, you know, even the legitimate information, you know, is 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 uh, overwhelming. I mean, I, I feel like I'm drinking journal articles from a fire hydrant. Uh, they're just coming so fast and furiously. Um, but, but the lay press is ready to jump on the latest, you know, rumor of anything. And, and they're, you know, they can really get you thinking in some strange directions. Uh, I really think you ought to be, uh, you know, watching a good movie if you're going to watch anything or, uh, or a concert or something like that. Paul, several people recommend a movie to me called um, Contagion. I have not seen it. 
Um, is that something you're familiar with? And is it accurate to, to what your life is like? Uh, I've, I've seen the movie. <laughs> it's entertaining. Um, <laughs> uh, some parts of it are accurate and, and other parts less so. I mean, you know, they have the, if it's the one I'm thinking of with uh, Kate Winslet, um, you know, the, the, there's much too, too much uh, put on the key character there. Uh, you know, responding to these epidemics is always going to be a team effort. And, uh, you know, they made it seem like there's this one person on whose shoulders everything was riding. Um, but uh, I, I wouldn't recommend against it, but uh, ne neither would I sort of rely on it for your, for your picture of what goes on in the epidemiology world. Paul, our last fact versus fiction question. If people at mass just don't shake hands, there really wouldn't be a need to stop masses. Oh boy, that's a loaded question in this audience, isn't it? Yes, um, it is. <laughs> I do think that that's one of the riskiest things to happen at Mass. And um, uh, actually what I told our pastor was, I think the riskiest thing we do is, is the coffee and donuts afterwards, where we're all getting together really expressly for the purpose of, of being in each other's faces talking with as many people as possible. You know, when I'm at coffee and donuts, I want to, oh, there's the, there's the Joneses over there. Let's go talk to them and see what's up. Um, and, and when you're in mass, I, I think the risk is much lower than that because we're all facing in the same direction. We're not there primarily to socialize. Um, I think it's prudent that we don't do the handshake of peace. Uh, um, you know, so I, I, I think mass is less risky than, than a lot of the socializing that goes on before and after mass. Uh, that said, you know, the, the uh, ecclesial authorities are always reluctant to get it, uh, get sideways with the secular authorities. And I think it was very prudent for the archbishops to say, okay, you know, we're going we're gonna to do what our non-Catholic neighbors are doing and, and follow the social distancing guidelines. So what will it take for you to recommend to my friend, Archbishop Sample, uh, who I went to college with, uh, that it might be safe to start having mass again? Or will it take something for the governor to say larger gatherings are allowed? Yes, I, I think he would probably defer to the governor's judgment on that. And, uh, and you know, we will be informing the governor with our disease rates and, and our modeling. Paul, is there any last um, message you want to leave with listeners at this point in the COVID pandemic? And this point is uh, Monday evening, March 30th, 2020. Well, I'll just say that, you know, this is a real thing. Um, I, I think it is in a lot of respects akin to influenza. I think the fatality rate is going to be a little higher than influenza is, but I think we're going to find out that there's a lot of people with asymptomatic or mild infections. The vast majority of us are going to get through this without getting uh, very sick anyway. Um, but you know, there's going to be a lot of people who uh, who get hospitalized and die from this. So it's it's not um, it's it's not nothing. But on the other hand, uh, you know, with the help of God, we're as a as a society, we, we are going to get through this, and, and we'll see the other side of it. Thank you, Paul, for being with us on Doctor Doctor. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Doctor Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor.
Doctor Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Doctor Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.